Welcome to the NBDA podcast, interviews with industry leaders and subject experts from across the business development world. Join us as we talk about real-world experiences, challenges, and opportunities that can take your career to the next level. The NBDA podcast is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the NBDA Podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with John Asher, CEO of Asher Strategies. John is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and served his country for more than two decades. During his time in the military, John was involved in top-secret data gathering and was responsible for giving concise yet informative briefings all the way up the chain of command as high as the Secretary of Defense. It was from giving those briefings that he honed not only his speaking skills, but also his sales skills. After retiring from the Navy, he embarked on a career in sales and public speaking. We covered a wide variety of sales topics, including listening techniques John wished he knew when he started his career, why the top 20% of salespeople earn more than 80% of the total income, why 50% of sales success is having the appropriate inherent sales personality, and perhaps most valuable, a tool that costs only $29 per month that allows you personality insight of every one of your prospects and clients. This is a great episode, especially if you are committed to ongoing improvement of your sales and business development skills. Let's get to the show. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the official podcast of the National Business Development Association. My guest today is John Asher, CEO of Asher Strategies, Inc., also known just as Asher. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. And where are you calling from today? I am actually born and raised in Washington, D.C. I live in a condo about five blocks from the White House, so it's been very exciting last year. I bet. I bet it has. I bet it has. So let's talk about your speaking business, because I know that's how the folks at NBDA came to know of you, because you were a speaker for one of their events, I believe. And so tell me about your speaking career. Did you just come out of the womb giving speeches and people started paying you, or was it a little longer journey than that? Well, it actually goes back to my first grade report card. Okay. And, um, my mother was big on, uh, on you know, scrapbooks, and not electronic back then, of course. So she sure. kept, every, kept everything, and so I still got them. And I still uh, go back every now and then to my first, first report card in the first grade. And my uh, name was Johnny back then because my father was alive. We had the same name. So I went by Johnny. Okay. And so the report card said, Johnny could be a pretty good student if he didn't always want to be the center of attention. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing has changed. (laughs) Apparently. Apparently. That, you know, some people do not. The, the traits that are going to make them successful do not appear so early. So that is, <laughs> that is great. So when did you do your first, I guess, speech that was not in an academic setting, you know, like for a class or something? 
Oh gosh, I was my first career was in the Navy, and I was okay. captain. Of, I was a captain of a couple of nuclear subs, and we would go on these highly classified uh, missions, reconnaissance and surveillance and those sorts of activities. And if you got really important information, you would give a briefing as the captain of the sub, maybe all the way up to the chief of naval operations or the head of the CIA, just depending on what it was. Okay. And so I had I had great admiral coaches who would who taught me how to give up a compelling presentation when you're, you know, presenting to the Secretary of Defense or people like that. Oh wow! So talk I about it. Yeah, so that's a little more pressure than speaking like to 50 people at a Rotary <laughs> Club, I suppose, huh? Pretty much. <laughs> so so first off, thank you for your service to our country. You are welcome. It was a pleasure to serve. A lot of fun. How many years were you in? Only 21. Only 21, huh? And 17 years were at sea on nuclear subs. Oh, wow. That's a lot of time without daylight, isn't it? Yep, with a lot of time. Wow. Especially in a, in, a, in a black tube, you know, with a whole bunch of other people. Sure, sure. So you so you you retired from the Navy and yeah. you were probably still a, a pretty young if you only were in twenty one years, what you probably went in after college. Yep, and then the early forties. Yeah. Early forties when you came out? Yep, pretty much. And I was um my last five years in the Navy, I was in the Pentagon as a buyer of large programs. Oh wow. Learned the, learned the whole acquisition process. So I then retired from the Navy. I'm a Navy engineer, forgive me. And um actually I'm a um physicist by education and an engineer by training. But I really couldn't oh, wow. do real I really couldn't do real work. I hated real work. I have lots of friends here at DC will say, you know, if you can't do real work, get into sales. <laughs> so, so I left, left the Navy and started an engineering company selling back to my friends in the Navy, right? How hard can that be? Okay. And grew the company up pretty fast. I was the sales guy. And of course, you have to give presentations to the back to the Navy. And we stalled a little bit. And then I joined Vistage and we kept on growing. And, and I, I became a, a trainer inside the company, teaching everybody how to sell, because we had the philosophy everybody's in sales. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of went on from there. And and after I was in Vistage for a while, the other members of the Vistage group said, "Would you teach us how to sell?" And so I did. And then I became a Vistage speaker. Wow! And what year was that then that you became a Vistage speaker? In 97, and I've given 1,700 Vistage talks since then. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Considering I've given uh, five, and that seemed like a lot to me, so <laughs> good for you. And so do you speak mostly on sales, or do you speak on other subjects too? So the I've got right now I've got four Vistage talks. One is just classic best practice sales and marketing strategies for sustained revenue growth. How do you grow a company faster? The second is on the neuroscience of sales. Mm. The third is on post-pandemic sales strategies. And the fourth is the nine steps to an unlimited life, which is my whole other company, the Longevity Institute. I see. And say that again, nine steps to an unlimited life. 
correct. When we started the company, it was called Nine Steps Towards an Unlimited Life. We weren't so brash as to think four years ago that you really could be an unlimited life, but now we know better. We know we, we know you can. So awesome. The name has changed to Nine Steps to an Unlimited Life. I like it. I like it. In fact, I'm giving that presentation to one of Christine's groups coming up. Oh, you are? Okay. So I'm going to get a little off my, my outline here. But so can you tell me uh, a bit about the nine steps to an unlimited life? Maybe kind of give me the, the elevator summary. So I'm trying to think of how to summarize it. So here, here's, here's the basics. I've been a health and nutrition and exercise zealot my whole life. I played college uh, football, and I've always been all about that. And I, I learned a lot about longevity just for my own benefit and going to conferences and that sort of thing. And then five years ago, I got a calling from the man upstairs. And I'm not real big on organized religion. I am spiritual. And the calling was unmistakable. It hit me in the chest like a like a sledgehammer. And the message was, you have to save a billion lives. So I got together with three other engineers, five doctors, longevity doctors, and we took as a hypothesis nine steps to an unlimited life, and we re-engineered it over three months. We followed the, the book, Discipline Entrepreneurship, from the head of the MIT Entrepreneurship Lab, the 24 Steps to Start a Company. And so we started up four years ago, and you'd recognize the first five steps, deep sleep, balanced meals, eat for a healthy gut microbiome, take get the right medical tests, blood tests, and on and on to, to make sure your everything is okay. Take the right supplements at the right time in your life. And then the next, the last four steps are much more exciting and provocative. And they are mainly about being an early adopter when new things come out. You can either wait for a clinical trial 10 years from now or implement it right away. Want one example, just for fun? Sure, I would. All right. So people who get type 2 diabetes, that's 10% of the people in the U.S., people who have type 2 diabetes almost always will take the drug metformin. been around for probably 50 years. It's a generic drug that just lowers your glucose level. It's based on the goat's rue plant, R-U-E, goat's rue plant, that's been used in China for 2,000 years to do the same thing. And and they're fine. If people don't take metformin who get type 2 diabetes, they lose on average 10 years of lifespan and 15 years of health span. Okay. People who take have type 2 diabetes, which is a horrible disease, and take metformin outlive people who don't have type 2 diabetes. Really? So, yeah. So you have to say to yourself, hmm. What is maybe I should maybe I should be taking maybe I should be taking that that drug, huh? Well, I've been taking it for five years, morning and evening. Wow! Even though you're not diabetic, no. So here's here's one more uh, here's another nail in the uh, recommendation. The FDA never does their own studies; they just 
approve how studies have to be run, and the big drug companies who want to approve a drug have to follow the FDA guidelines. And as I'm sure you know, if the benefits of the drug outweigh the side effects, it gets approved. The FDA has never done their own study. The FDA just got together tens of millions of dollars to do their first study ever. And it's the first study ever for a longevity drug because the FDA would require it to be done for at least five years and no drug company wants to do that. And the FDA has started the study and it's to assess the benefit of metformin on longevity. Hmm. So you can tell from that if the FDA, right, who is pretty slow at doing things, is all right. over this. Okay, so now here we go, David. The ninth step in the in the um, ninth step to an unlimited life is be an early adopter. So, yep. based on what you know now, would you take metformin? Yes. If you immediately say yes, you're an early adopter. If you say, well, no, there's never been a clinical trial yet, or you know, blah, 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 then you're not. So the ninth step, if you really want an unlimited life, you got you pretty much have to be an early adopter. And does that mean not just like for like drugs and supplements and stuff like that, but does it also involve like you know, learning technology, being like an early technology adopter to help your brain stay more supple? Or does it just the, mean yep. on the supplement all the, side? All the above. All the above. Okay. It includes everything. Okay. Mindfulness, fasting, you name it. Anything you've heard of about longevity or an unlimited life is, is in our nine steps one way or the other. So I suppose even like somebody who's like in their 70s, who's never played a video game and they say, hey, you know what? My grandkids are into these things. I'm going to learn how to play video games. That probably is not going to hurt their longevity, will it? Because of the no, kind of early adapter. It. Yeah, that's what it'll, I would think. Absolutely. So it the reason that their, decision... Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Just, I was just going to say it'll cause their brain to not, not get into dementia quite as soon as, as it normally would. Yeah, because it helps kind of the elasticity. It connects new neurons and and that. So the reason the answer was so yes to to the question, I don't know if I'm an early adopter or if I'm just very analytical, but if you told me that metformin, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. That that if if, if it had the impact that it did for, for diabetics and diabetics on this drug lived six months less than the average person, then that would give me pause, right? Because, hey, maybe somebody who didn't have diabetes that took this might live six months longer. Uh, But the fact that they lived longer, even though they had this terrible underlying health disease, to me made it uh, not even an early adopter question, just a logical uh, question, because how, like, how could it, you know, just seem like the way to go. So I'll give, I'll give you a quick example okay. yeah. on why it's harder than it sounds. So uh, four, five years ago, I guess now, I went to my primary care physician and said, I, I, it's, it's, he runs like a little Mayo Clinic type of thing here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I, want a, I want a prescription for a metformin. He said, well, why? You're about as far away from uh, diabetes as you can get. I'm like 6'2 and 160. And I said, no, I want it for longevity purposes. He said, well, I've never heard of that. 
So I emailed him the studies and I called him up. I said, so see the studies? He said, I said, yes. I said, what do you think? He said, well, you know, there's never been any clinical trials and, you know, we doctors take the Hippocratic oath, blah, 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 you know, do no harm. Yeah. And with every drug, there's side effects. So I just don't feel comfortable um, prescribing it because there could be some side effects. So I fired him <laughs> <laughs> and got a longevity doctor who prescribed it. That's awesome. Well, uh, I, I appreciate the little digression there. That was that was very interesting. I enjoyed that. So let's get back to Good. your speaking career. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your speaking career back in 1997? Oh, gosh, just a lot of techniques about how to be a great speaker. An example would be, it can't be about the speaker. It's got to be about the listeners. Mm -hmm. So you can you can talk on stuff you love to talk about, but if it ain't right interesting to the listeners, then, then it's a big bust. So you have to focus it on the uh, listeners. Number one, number two, it's got to be interactive. And even if it's a big group, you can get people to raise their hands or clap and stand. There's all kinds of techniques you can use uh, no matter what the size of the group and no matter whether it's a big group in person or a. have done presentations on Zoom to up to 100 salespeople at one time. So you got to make it interactive and get them in, involved in it. Uh, number three, it's got to be new information they've never heard before or it's got to be a new way of doing a technique they've been doing, but in a much better way. An example would be, instead of being an active listener, which has always been the gold standard, be a perfect listener. So if you can show them what perfect listening means, not just active listening, so now you're talking about a sales technique, obviously listening, but you're giving it in a much better and different way. Hmm. And then fourth, you must be an entertainer. And the fourth may be the most important. Maybe the right. Most important. <laughs> so those are the probably sure. the four principles I've learned. Okay. How did you learn about the uh, National Business Development Association? Well, Christine Spray is a celebrated Vistage uh, chair, as you know. Yes. And, um, <laughs> as you know well. <laughs> Correct. And, and so I was I was signed up to do her groups. Oh, gosh, it must be four years ago. And it turned out she was on vacation. and But she had lined up a woman, CEO in one of her groups, who wanted to be a, you know, be a chair someday. And so she, she became the chair. So Christine and I became associated. We never actually um, met in person, but we, just because of that and me working for a lot of our CEOs, we, be, we became involved together. And, and then since then, I've given my pre-pandemic, I mean, uh, post-pandemic sales strategies to all of her groups. And based on that, she asked me to give it to the, to the NBD group. Okay. And now she's got me going on the longevity stuff as well. 
That's awesome. And so, so the reason that you became a speaker for NBDA was primarily just because of your prior working relationship with Christine, right? Correct. Okay. So you're the sales and business development expert. How much time do you spend a week on business development? Oh, gosh, it just, it just depends because I am, let me see if I can think about an average. So big picture, most of our business comes from either my Vistage talks, so it comes from the CEOs who heard it and liked it and want some help somewhere. Okay. Or it comes from some of our more business from the current clients, like Goldman Sachs is a client. And anytime they're going to buy a company, they have six checklists they go through. And one of them, they outsource to us, tell us about the sales and marketing expertise of this company we're thinking about buying. We have, because of my defense background, and four of our trainers have a military background, we have continuing business with big companies like Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Raytheon, etc. Okay. And then we have a I mean, a number of continuing clients just because we've been doing this for 24 years, you know, who sure. come back and, and want more. So as far as um, hunting a new client, most of that would be within the Vistage community and the CEOs. And as you know, when somebody is interested in something, you can't wait a week to get back to them. Sure. Right? And, and in today's world, you now have minutes, right? Not hours. Right, <laughs> right. And so if it is a CEO and they're interested in the bigger picture about our aptitude assessment, sales training, sales and process improvement workshops, and that sort of thing, then I'll reach out to them myself. And, and so I'm kind of the closer for that. And so that varies just depending on when's the last business presentation I did and how many people were interested. But I would say, I'd say two days a week, I've got the CEO hat on, one day in the training company, one day in the longevity company, two days a week I'm doing hunting, and then the other day I'm trying to trying to catch up. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that's that's a great answer. Speaking of business development, could you think of like maybe three of your top business development best practices? So, number well, first of all, number one, if you go um, to Harvard, Harvard has the university has the biggest sales department of any university. They've had it for forty four years. They put out lots of data every year. Right now, Harvard claims that there's 25 million salespeople in the U.S. and that there's two 80-20 or Pareto principles that apply uh, mm -hmm. to them. The first is 20% <clears throat> of those salespeople are elite. 80% are not so hot. Mm -hmm. And their turnover rate of the 80% is about a third per year, 2019 okay. and prior. The last two years, of course, have been totally screwy years, as you know. Sure. The second 80-20 second rule is the top 20%, the 5 million, bring in 80% of the new business. So then when you say that to yourself, you, of course, the question you ask yourself if you're a CEO, knowing that now, how do I get that 5 million? That's right. part of my sales force, right? <laughs> I want them. 
So then when you say, okay, so peel back the onion, what do, what do they look like? Well, if you go to almost any sales training institute in the U.S., and I'm in a vintage group with all the CEOs of them, and you know we meet at trade shows and have dinner, we compete, we team up, we refer each other, and on and on. And if you boil down what all, all of our experience together would be, when you watch great salespeople, there's five factors for sales success. Number one, brilliant product knowledge. They really know what they're talking about. And that gives them power and confidence. And you got to okay. learn it, right? Got to be learned. Number two, they have great selling skills. They've learned. And those must be learned. Number three, they have a natural talent for sales, easily measured with aptitude assessments. Number four, they're charged up and self-motivated. And number five, the companies that they work for have great process, sales and marketing processes and technology and coaching to support the salespeople. So when you see all that, all five in alignment, there is a real strong correlation to that 5 million or the top 20% of the salespeople in the U.S. When you look at the 80 um, the eighty percent, the twenty million that aren't so hot, and ask, well, what's wrong? In our experience, having trained eighty thousand of them <laughs> over many years, it's usually one of two things or both, and that is selling skills or sales aptitude. So they don't have the right aptitude for sales, or they got a, an okay amount. And they've actually, it's shocking, they've actually never been to sales training, you know, a formal sales training course. Okay. But that's just kind of the big picture on uh, salespeople in the U.S. So I think the takeaway is I look at those, that really the only one that's sort of inherent is that natural talent, right? Everything else can be learned or is the responsibility of the company. Yes, and if to peel back that down in a little bit further, based on a meta-analysis of studies in large companies, <clears throat> say Salesforce, um, Oracle, Honeywell, I'll keep naming them off, where they have lots of salespeople, aptitude of the five factors accounts for 50% of results. Hmm. And the other 50%, the other four factors together. So aptitude ain't everything, but it is pretty significant. <laughs> and if you're hiring salespeople who don't have much of it, I mean, we're really, really tying one arm behind our back. Sure, and, sure. And the best they can ever be would be, you know, adequate, which is not good enough for most, you know, for most CEOs. Now, sure. To figure out that aptitude, there's only like two assessments and we we promote one of them that are really good at figuring that aptitude out and it's called the APQ advanced personality questionnaire and the the reason is this if there was a perfect correlation between aptitude and sales results then that's easy but there's right. not it only accounts for 50% of results 
Right. So then, if you want what are called validity studies or correlation studies to real results by salespeople, which hardly any assessment does except two, then you've got to go into um, a large company, pick 120 salespeople so you get statistically significant results, give them an assessment, watch results for two years, see how much they sell, and then take the results in Salesforce, Oracle, Honeywell, and you know a bunch of others, mush it together, and then you can say, okay, if you want to hire outside, say, outside hunter salespeople, and there's nine personality traits, which ones of the traits you want to be high? I have a lot of. Which ones do you want them to have not much of the trait? An example would be need to analyze, right? Yeah. You don't want hunters all bogged down in analysis. Right. Analysis. And which ones do you want the salespeople to have a moderate amount? An example would be need to nurture other people. So if hunter salesperson has a very high need to nurture, they'll keep on building rapport forever and never close them. <laughs> right. If they don't have hardly any need to nurture, then they come across as too cold. Okay. So then, so then if you do these big correlation studies for over a period of time in large companies with at least 120 people, same company selling the same things, then you can come up with some real great data that's very predictive of whether the person you hire is going to sell much, a lot, or not much. Okay. That, that is a lot of good info. And uh, I'm, sure you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this, David. This is, this is the number for, for the larger companies, but it applies to smaller companies pretty much as well. I'm sure you've heard this, this statement that if you hire the wrong salesperson, it is, on average, the $250,000 hiring mistake. In other words... I have heard that. Right? And so when an assessment costs like $100, it's a real cheap insurance policy. Yes. Right? Yes, indeed. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. How do you, how do you develop relationships and kind of what are your best practices for, for building your network? So relationships, if you go back to emotional intelligence, there are, and boil it all down, 36 years of research, <laughs> there are four levels of emotional intelligence. One is, I'll give you, I'll use the example of the assessment we use because it's tuned to help understand EQ as well. So EQ 1.0 is just understanding who you are from those nine personality traits. How much of each trait do you have? EQ 2.0 is understanding when you're really extremely high or low that it could be a great strength for you, but it could also be a blind spot. I'll give you an example for me. One of those traits is drive. Well, my drive is 98% compared to everybody else, meaning I'm more driven than 98% of the rest of the people, but 2% are more driven than me. Now, that's a great strength for me, right? When my feet hit the deck when I get out of bed in the morning, I'm in fifth gear already. But it can also be a blind spot, meaning I'll take on too many projects and do a crappy job of a bunch of projects instead of a brilliant job of a few. Or I'll run over people and expect people to keep up with me when they can't. 
So that's EQ 2.0, recognizing your extreme traits, what a great benefit they are for you and keep them up, but also recognize the blind spots that can go along with them and learn to stretch from them. EQ 3.0 is understanding, back to this personality assessment, understanding for the job, which one of those nine traits are in the green zones. You don't have to stretch much at all. You're the perfect fit. Or maybe you're pretty well suited. You're really high, but you're in the red for two of the traits. Then when you're operating in that job, you got the hunter hat on. How do you stretch in those two traits where you're in the red to actually do better in the role? So in all the EQ books, they call this role, R-O-L-E, role management. Then the fourth level of EQ is understanding which one of the four personality styles you are, understanding that 75% of the rest of the people in the world are different than you. Right, <laughs> by definition. from you is way different than you. And being able to get along with the other three types at the, here's the key word from EQ, at the expert level is the highest level of EQ. So this is directly related to being able to build relationships quickly. And what it means is before you ever go interact with somebody in person, podcast, Zoom, whatever it is, find out their personality style. So you know how to interact with them. And from a sales standpoint, you know what to give them because that's what mm -hmm. they need to make their decision, not what you want to give based on your style. And now there is a website out there called Crystal Nose. Heard of it? Crystal Nose? I have not. So you go to Crystal Nose, you put in the buyer's name, let's say it's Bill Baldwin, and you put in Bill's company. So Crystal Nose is the right person. Then that website goes scraping all social media platforms, the websites globally, doing word association with Bill Baldwin and everywhere where he shows up and the words that are associated with his name. And if he's taking the disk assessment, that gets integrated in. And it comes back within about one second, tells you which of those four personality styles he is, tells you how to write an email to him how to write an uh, email to him. And actually, in the advanced version of Crystal knows, as you're typing your email, Crystal automatically changes the email to be better tuned to Bill's personality style. Wow. I build relationships with new people. Figure out their, go to Crystal knows $29 a month. We don't sell it. We just use it and recommend it. Then you become an expert relationship builder. Wow. So, yeah, I'm just looking it up now. So, crystalnose.com, is that yeah. it? Wow, that is really, that is really fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you're going to see a banker, right? You're hiring somebody new. You're applying for a job. Classic sales, account management, upsell, cross-sell. It helps in essentially every, 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 every area. I'll give you a fun example. Yeah. We're, up with a, we're, we're, we're a sales company. We're teaming up with a marketing company. And anytime a, a prospect wants sales and marketing and sales and marketing integration, then we'll team up with them. 
So we have a customer, Anchor Loans, great, great company. We've helped them go from 37, or no, wait, 13 to 47 states. It's been a nice run. And we're getting ready to renew our contract with them. And they have a new CEO. And we have an inside coach, you know, that term from the Noah Hyman training, mm-hmm. or the inside champion from the Kobe training. So we have an inside coach. And my friend from the marketing company is essentially with the coach coming up with a presentation to show the new CEO. So he's got it, and now he's showing it to me. And as he's droning through slides, I can see there's 25 slides. I said, by the way, John, what's his, the new CEO's personality style? He said, gosh, you know, I don't know. So we looked it up just as fast as you, you could look it up. And it turns out the new CEO is a driver driver. Okay. So we deleted John's presentation, started over, ended up with five slides, and the last two were case studies, and renewed the business. So, so that was probably worth way. that was probably worth the twenty nine dollars for that month, huh? <laughs> How about for ten years? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot well, of that is awesome. Well, that may be the most valuable piece of sales advice I've ever received is uh, spend $29 a month for Crystal Nose to uh, have some insight into the personality type of your prospect. Not only that, it's a plug-in to LinkedIn. So when you, oh, wow. when you bring up, let's say you brought up my LinkedIn profile. Yeah. there, And you had the, the Crystal Nose plug-in. Way out to the right will be click here for personality style. You click there, and within the link, my LinkedIn profile that you're looking at, that whole right-hand vertical column is everything about me, my personality style, what you should and shouldn't say to me, how to build a relationship, you know, everything. And then you want more information? Click again, and the whole screen fills up. And wow. literally in real time, write your in-mail. And as I mentioned, Crystal will automatically correct your email. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and is that all included in the $29 a month or is there an extra no, cost a, for the LinkedIn there is a, connection? There's a, there's a um, no, no, I think the LinkedIn plugin is free, but there is a higher level. Uh, I see. But it's worth every penny. That's, that is really interesting. I'm going to investigate that uh, more myself. So what do you wish you knew earlier in your career of sales or business development i'd asked you about what you wish you knew when you were a speaker but what do you wish you knew about selling what do you know now that you wish you knew then well probably you know the one of my vicious talks is on the neuroscience of sales and it's all about the six activators that wakes up the buyer's old brain and a number of cognitive biases that we can use to influence um, other people. And it's a, it's a whole vicious presentation. And it has, so, so what we basically did is we, 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 you know, we read, our group read like 20 books on neuroscience, thinking fast and slow and influence, you know, and on and on, and put it all together and came up with this vicious presentation. And just to give you an example, 
If you go to Wikipedia and type in cognitive bias, there's 184 of them. So we've analyzed wow. all 184 and boil them down to the 46 that apply to sales and marketing. And I've got a sample of 10 in my Vistas presentation, and as well as the six activators. And as you go through that Vistas presentation, every slide essentially at the bottom has a practical application. And so that has allowed me to really understand which skills I had learned by by practice and which and from sales training, which ones were correct, a better way to do some existing skills, and some that were not the right way to do it. And hmm. so I wasn't teaching it the right way either. <laughs> so that's been a real, real eye-opener. And I didn't know any of that stuff back then when I was a pup. Wow. Well, we're down to the final three questions. Okay. What would you say to somebody who's interested in shifting to a career in business development or sales? You know, so maybe like you, they started off with more of a technical mm -hmm. background, but for whatever reason, they think the grass is going to be greener or, or more lucrative on the selling side of the fence. What would you say to that person? Take an assessment and see how well suited you are for it. Okay. See which sales role you would be good at. I'll give you a brief example for myself. Sure. When I left, left the Navy, my first job was as a um, seller to large companies in the government of medical software, new claims processing systems. I was, you know, my early 40s, so I was more mature than most of the other salespeople. And I'd learned to sell based on my training from the admirals in the Pentagon. So I mm -hmm. went to the number one sales guy pretty quickly. And then I got promoted to sales manager, and which I was happy about. My wife was happy about, blah, blah, blah. And then about three months later, I got fired as the sales manager. Okay. Shifted back, shifted back to all outside sales. And if I had known back then that my hunting talent was an 89, zero from, from 100, and my sales manager talent was a 22, I would have never taken that sales manager's job. Sure. So I'm the classic, right? The best sales guy gets promoted to sales manager. Right. All the time. <laughs> right. Which so is like a sales. triple, which is like exactly. a triple lose, right? It's a lose <laughs> for the, the person. It's a lose for the sales department and it's a lose for the company. Yeah. And so that would be, the, since it accounts for 50% of results, you know, sure. Assessment and make make sure you're going to get into the sales role where you have the have the talent. And if you don't, it's going to be a very frustrating job. Sure, sure. And, okay. You know, and sales is uh, a sales career is not for the faint of heart. Right? Uh, you got no, to work and work hard and work smart and be a continuous learner. You know, and on and on. For sure. Okay. Down to the last two. Is there anything else you'd like to to share with any of the other business development professionals listening? Or, or is there anything, maybe other takeaway or tip that we didn't touch on that maybe comes to mind that we would be remiss if we did not mention? 
Well, I mentioned that the, the basic selling skills have been really upgraded with all this new neuroscience information. I'll just give one example. I alluded to it already. And that is, it's always been true that the, the salespeople who aren't very good were passive listeners. Mm -hmm. Passive listening means if you and I are having a conversation, I'm listening just to hear what you're saying enough to interrupt you and talk about what I want to say or what I think. Right. Of course, in sales, that essentially means that salespeople don't really do a thorough job of a needs analysis. They start offering as soon as they can. And right. as you know, most savvy buyers can sense this and they'll, they'll consider that salesperson as having what's called commission breath. Right? <laughs> commission breath. I like that. <laughs> the active listeners, and of course, the great salespeople, totally listen to the buyer's needs before you offer something. That's huge difference between the average and successful salespeople. Now, based on all this new neuroscience information, active listeners have picked up their game to perfect listening. Not good, not great, not astounding, not superior, but perfect. At the end of a needs analysis, the buyer will say, wow, you have a perfect understanding of our needs. You've actually helped me understand what we really need. This has been such a great collaboration. Thank you so much. Wouldn't it be great to hear that from the next buyers we listen to? <laughs> All right, so For perfect sure. Perfect listening is three things. One, be the active listener. Second, ask permission to take notes and take notes. 90% of the salespeople take notes. Almost everybody gets that now. Only 10%. Ask permission to take notes and miss six outstanding reasons to do so for the six based on neuroscience. Third, summarize and feed it back to the buyer what you think you heard them say about their needs or aspirations and get their feedback. Only 2% of the salespeople do it. Wow. And the reason to do it is when you look at the data from the the sales, the universities with a four-year sales degree, there's 25 of them. When the students practice this in the sales labs, when they practice step three, they only get it perfectly correct 5% of the time. So the perfect listeners now are active listeners. They ask permission to take notes. They take notes. They summarize and feed it back. Only 10% ask permission, only 2% summarize the feedback. So it's a way wow. to like leap, leap beyond all your competitor salespeople. Wow. That's, I just uh, can't take notes quickly enough. You just have one great nugget after another, John. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, we are down to the last question. And this is a bit of a trick question, but not really. <laughs> Okay. If you could go back and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give to yourself? I think I would I would go back and and tell myself to be to really pick up my game from a moral, ethical and legal standpoint and to do a better uh job of having uh, core values personally and sticking to them 
Now wow. I'm pretty much 100% of doing it, but I wasn't back when I was 25. Can you give an example of that that would not be too embarrassing? Well, like I, an I'll give example of your short of a ways a way you might have fallen short. Oh, um, it goes back to my first grade report card, and that is putting myself first too much. Oh, I see. Okay, right. And now I always put the other people first. I've learned, but back then I didn't. Oh, I see. So that's one of the things you were talking about as far as picking up your game and and those personal values being more clear on them. And one of those personal values being to put the other person uh, first. Yeah. And another one was I hadn't read Napoleon Hill's book yet. Yep. Give give extra. Yeah. So I was pretty stingy with giving extra until I read it. Okay. That is awesome. Well, John, this was really a treat, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down with me. Thank you so much, uh, David. It was great. You're a, you're a great interviewer for a podcast. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at podcast.nbda.co, and you can find out more about being a member of the National Business Development Association at nbda.co. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.